World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi everyone, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again today with another episode of the World of Work podcast. What are we speaking about today, Jane? Uh, We're revisiting one of our favorite topics today. Uh, And we are going to be talking all about culture and a little bit about remote cultures too. And we're going to be doing it with our guest, Ben Branson-Gately from Charlie HR. Brilliant. Well, it's one of our favorite subjects. So let's get into the conversation and see what we can learn. Okay, so here we are in the main body of today's podcast, and we've got a really great conversation lined up. We're going to be speaking to Ben Branson-Gately, and we're going to be exploring a little bit more of a broader topic of organizational culture and focusing in a little bit more on remote cultures and what they're like and how maybe we can foster and create helpful remote cultures for our organizations. Um, Ben, before we get into that subject, would you be able to introduce yourself to the audience and say a little bit more about yourself and your background and what you are working on at the minute? Sure, sounds sounds good. I'm always really intrigued as to people's podcast voice versus their real voice. Um, James, your podcast voice, loads of energy. I love it. Um, right. Yeah. Hi, team. Uh, I'm Ben, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Charlie HR. Um, we started that business about five years ago, uh, focusing on how to help people save time. Uh, in terms of all the HR admin that that happen in a business day to day, we predominantly work with. SMEs, small businesses under 100. That's kind of where, what we're really passionate about. And um, we're now sort of refocusing the organization and trying to move towards a world where we help companies craft their culture. So that's what I'm really passionate about. Uh, culture, uh, how to think of that as a sort of strategic tool within an organization. Yeah, brilliant. And, and you know, culture is a topic that, that we're hugely passionate about as well. And we'll come on, I'm sure, to some of those reasons. I guess, before we explore those, though, when you think about culture and the things that you're doing, how would you describe culture as, uh, you know, to a, to a lay person, I guess? What does culture mean to you? Yeah, it's really it's a really interesting question. It's a really important question. And I think it's, it's a question that we've historically had really bad answers to. And I think this is kind of why we're in a bit of um, the place where we are, why, why maybe culture isn't prioritised as much as as I would like and as we would like, maybe. Um, so to me, culture is the output of the people you bring into your organization, right? Who you hire. Mm-hmm. It's the policies that you set. So what are the do's and don'ts? And I and guys, I don't just mean uh, things written on a document and put in a desk drawer. I mean those that are those that are said, but also those that are unsaid, right? The kind of the natural, the obvious do's and don'ts of an organization. Yeah. And then your processes, so how you work. Um, I think culture is actually very operational, right? Uh, the activities, the way you run your company have a massive impact on the culture you create. So um, that's how we see culture as um, being the output of those three buckets of activities. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. And, and it's good to bring some of that um, sort of acknowledgement of a role of process and procedure and some of those more mechanistic and, and structured aspects of work into a discussion of culture because we think that's important too when 
when we think about culture and, and when we talk about culture, we sometimes take it for granted that culture brings benefits with it and that, that you know, you, you talked about it being a strategic thing. I guess it, it would also be good to step back and, and reflect a little bit on from your side, how you think cultures help organizations. You know, what's the advantage of having a stronger culture or, or what do you gain by investing time in your culture? Well, there's th- three things, three areas, three buckets that we know um, from studies, um, from research that are the output of a strong culture. The first one, which is pretty obvious, is um, it's going to put you in a really good place to attract the best people. Um, you know, we've, re- you know, McKinsey wrote about the war on talent probably 10 years ago now. Um, and that's still the case, right? Um, there is a war on talent. The businesses with the best people win. And, and I think one of the interesting things, like a side note, is what we've seen from 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 COVID is lots of people are really taking a second to think about what am I doing with my life? And is this really where I want to work? Is this really where I want to spend my time? So I think it's going to become even more important to attract uh, attract great people. The second is retention. So um, we know that uh, organizations with really strong cultures have a much higher retention than those that don't. Um, cultures where people want to spend their time are much more likely to be places where people decide to spend their time, right? That feels pretty obvious. And then the last one is performance. So a highly enabled culture that thinks very strategically about what the organization is trying to achieve and how that culture could support that uh, has a huge impact on performance and output. I think one of the massive benefits over the last 12 months is you know, remote work, hybrid work forces us to get away of looking at hours as a way to measure output. Um, you know, really out, really results are driven, um, you know, by the outcomes that we, that we create as people within, within teams. So, you know, we know that culture has a, has a huge impact on, uh, how to create motivation within a team, how to drive a team towards a common goal. Um, and, and the output of that is all results, right? Uh, you know, business results, which is what we're after. Yeah. And and you said in a lot of your work, you're working with organizations maybe up to 100 people or in that kind of domain. So, so organizations um, less than 100 people. When you find that you're working with these types of organizations, do you get the sense or, or is your experience that culture is intentionally shaped within these organizations or is it sort of evolved as a product of, of their sort of history and existence? What, what's your sense of how cognizant and intentional teams and leaders are when it comes to shaping cultures in their organizations? Super, super, super good question. I think this is part of the problem and and, and part of the challenge. Um, I don't think culture is prioritized well enough within organizations. Um, And I think part of that is because we don't have a good definition for it. Um, And and a lot of the definitions that that sit out there are are pretty fluffy. And, you know, you talk to... um, tech companies, small businesses, high growth companies, however you want to kind of classify it. And you'll hear people talking more about ping pong tables and free beer and great Christmas parties than you will about some of the things that I've just talked about, right? People, policies and process. So um, uh, part of the kind of mission that I'm personally on, the battle that I'm fighting, um, is I want to give people that clearer definition, A, Two, I want to help them understand the benefits 
of of a great culture, which we just talked about, attraction, retention, and performance. I think if we could do both of those things, people will start to prioritize it more. Um, but at the moment, for sure, it's it's definitely not the top of the agenda. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's that's our sense as well. And and I guess one of the other things that I, I guess I'll ask, um, sort of in relation to your your business at the minute, what sort of assumed knowledge do you take in with you? I mean, when you're working with people and and you're going out, something that we find when we speak to consultants and practitioners is that people have a, an assumed level of knowledge for the people that they work with. When you're actually working with these people, what sort of assumed level of knowledge do you find is right to bring to them? How much knowledge do they have about culture? Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a fun question. I think. I think you want to, I think, I think that the answer to that question is kind of how you approach any conversation. If I'm honest with you, James, um, like approach every conversation humbly, um, you know, approach every conversation knowing that you can add some value, but not trying to prove that maybe, you know, more than the other person, yeah. um, you know, culture is something that affects all of us. Uh, it has a huge impact on how we feel at work. And, and therefore has a massive impact on our happiness, right? Um, yeah. So it's an important thing, uh, but equally no one, uh, well, uh, no one enjoys being preached to, right? So I think um, making sure that you kind of check yourself in terms of in terms of how you have those conversations, I think is it's just what it means to be a good person, right, at the end of the day. Yeah, that little bit of humbleness can go a long way that, you know, listening before we leap is, is helpful. For sure, for sure. When we talk about the different factors that are that affected a culture, you, you mentioned a few different things. So you talked about processes, you talked about policies, um, you also talked about you know statements and, and things that you don't you know put in the, uh, the, the desk drawer, but things that you live. What other factors do you think affect the culture in an organization, and who within organizations contributes to and impacts and, and shapes the cultures that exist? Well, I think you know the, the three buckets people, policies, and process, I, I do think people is the biggest one. And that's why I'm such an advocate for how you prioritize hiring and thinking about that and getting that right. The people that you bring into a room have an exponentially bigger impact on the culture than any policy or process, right? Policy and process are there to kind of guide and shape. But Really, if you want to rebuild a culture, if you want to remake a culture, you probably have to change the people in the room, right? The people are kind of the raw ingredients for this dish that we're making. So um, they have the biggest impact. I think, um, you know, there's a good point to make here around leadership, which is that, you know, leaders can have a really, really positive impact on crafting the right culture, but they can destroy it overnight as well. So, um, you know, as I think about, you know, consultants in the space or practitioners, or I think about HR leaders who are kind of advocating for this work, and there are some awesome groups and people out there, uh, you know, Culture Amp run a great um, Culture First community, which is awesome. There's so much great advocation for the prioritization of culture. None of that matters if a CEO is not on board or a founder's not on board, or a managing director's not on board. Because if they're not living those things each and every day, no one's going to believe it. And this kind of idea of authenticity and trust and vulnerability, I think are really big themes uh, and, and really important powers when it comes to crafting culture within any organisation. I'd be interested in your thoughts. We, we, we've talked 
we talked about culture a little bit in previous episodes and people come on different sides of the fence on this. So I'd be interested on your view of how much you think cultures are driven by from a, a kind of a bottom up approach of what happens within the majority of interactions within organizations between the people and the people themselves versus how much is driven from the top and through the actions and role modeling of the senior staff. It's a, it's a, it's a good point. I think, you know, I would not be able to put a percentage on it for sure. I think it's going to look very different in every, in every organization, but I, I guess I want to advocate for a leadership model rather than a management model. Right. Um, and if you if you look at the two the two definitions uh, of of those two words, you'll see that you know leadership is um, someone walking forward and people following behind, whereas management is um, someone turning around and saying let's do this, let's do that. It's much more uh, much more dictatorial. It's much more um, this is how we're going to do things. So I think I think that's the big decision that organisations need to make. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other, right? Like there are some organizations which do very, very well and are very successful um, uh, when, it, when it comes to their sort of management philosophies and really echoing those, those traits. But I personally believe the types of organizations that I want to be part of, the types of organizations that we want to build and, and, help, and help grow are those that, you know, use and channel that 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 leadership style and so in thinking about that when it comes to culture you know it puts you in a much stronger position because you're saying look I'm going to act and behave in the right way and I'm going to kind of march forward into the sunset and and you're all going to follow and and you're going to be able to see how I behave and how I interact and how I how I do things and the decisions that I make and, and you're going to mimic those. I think it's, 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 a, it's, it lets up, it sets up for a much more successful, uh, successful culture. Um, I think you can have uh, a leader that, you know, embodies the culture really well. And then you can have people on the team that, that don't, and that maybe are corrosive or, or, you know, the anti of the culture that you're trying to build and you can still have pockets of the culture that you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, what you can't have is uh, a team that are embodying the culture in some ways and then a leader that doesn't. Yeah. Um, and I, don't got know that, about, I don't know about you. That's something we see quite a lot. Yeah, it is. And it's frustrating. Um, it's really frustrating. But I think the more I talk about any of these things that relate to culture, people, HR, all of these different topics, the thing I keep coming back to is good leadership is actually really, really difficult. And not only difficult, it takes up a lot of time and energy. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people are pretty lazy. And so they end up going the, the quick and easy route rather than the, the difficult and hard route. And, and that's why we end up in the situations that we end up in. So it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting listening to you, Ben, because um, one of the things that we find, James and I, is that culture is one of the most contentious things we talk about with our guests. Like we, like we feel differently to them and they feel differently to each other and all of that. And there's things that you say that feel so accurate and so unspoken sometimes, like the fact that leadership is really hard. So James and I talk about it all the time. Leadership is like a daily, for us anyway, we talk about how leadership is almost like a daily challenge to do the thing that you need to do in every interaction, wherever you can, to be really your best, 
within the terms of the culture so that your team can see that and, and relate to it and directly apply the knowledge. Um, so it just made me smile as you were saying that because I felt like saying, yes, please, can everyone listen to how hard leadership is and also how much effort you put into it? Um, I guess the, the question comes whether people are lazy or whether they just don't understand what it means to be that sort of attention, have that attention to detail as a leader. So I'm, I, I don't know about that, but definitely, definitely that piece about um, strength leadership. I wanted to ask you um, about your thoughts then on middle managers, because one of the things we talk about loads is this up-down business. And I think you're right. I think it's contextual. I think James and I would both agree on that, that it depends on the organization. But what we do find when we talk to organizations quite a lot is that the middle managers get stuck in the middle. So there's there's either a desired culture from one end or the other that's being driven. And those people that are managing the teams on the ground find that they get sandwiched in between or pulled in one direction, struggling to sort of enforce change or drive change. Um, I guess I'd be really interested what your sort of thoughts are on how those people who are sort of aspiring to be their best management, but maybe are, are finding it challenging to push upwards to sort of drive better cultures. If you've got any thoughts on what they can do or, or, or how they might approach that. Yeah, very hard. It's very difficult. Um, uh, you know, and just to your earlier point, you know, being a good leader is exhausting. Like genuinely exhausting. Um, you know, I have been doing it for doing it for ten years. We built a social media agency before we started work on Charlie, and yeah, it's tiring, right? Been through lots of bouts of burnout and therapy. Uh, you know, I have therapy every single week just to kind of keep me on on the track and sane, and um, uh, you know, help me to be a good a good brother and a good son and a good uh, husband and a good friend and all of those things. Right. Because I think otherwise, you know, work can, uh, can definitely overtake those, those things. Um, and I think the key thing that we get wrong as leaders is we're not vulnerable enough. You know, we, we think that what our teams want from us is to stand up and be like, yeah, we've got all the answers. We're really good at our jobs. We're very effective. We're the smartest person in the room. We're the best at. We're the best person in the room, and in fact, that's a complete lie. I'm definitely not the smartest person in the room at Charlie. I'm probably middle of the pack at best. Um, I'm definitely not that great at my job, and I definitely have good days and have bad days. And I think you know, one of the coping mechanisms that allows you to be a a better leader, more authentic leader, is kind of just take, taking the pressure off and saying, you know what. I'm going to try at this, but I'm not going to be perfect. And then suddenly the team are like, okay, cool. You're being real. You're being honest. You're being vulnerable with us. We can, we, you know, we, we'll give you the feedback you need. Um, uh, and we'll work with you on this rather than, you know, trying to be this sort of Churchillian uh, leader uh, carved out of stone, which is just, it's never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, when, right, when we talk right. about, there's so many perspectives of people out there thinking like that, right? And thinking that's what it is. Yeah, and I think that's partly because of the media. It's partly because of the history books. It's you grow up and, and you know, you hear about all these amazing founders in Silicon Valley um, who are, like, the media portrays as being incredibly smart and incredibly good, to, good at their jobs. We don't talk enough about the things that we get wrong, the things that we struggle with, Um you know, the, the example that I will, uh, you know, highlight is uh, the founder of Monzo um, stepping down, stepping off the board this year. Um, 
he was a CEO, he moved to moved to the chairman position, and he's now he's now completely stepped away, you know, citing mental health examples and his well being as a reason for doing that. And I wish more people would do that. I wish more people. I wish we would celebrate more of the people that do that. I think I think that's the example we need to set. You know, when we think about middle managers, um, I, I completely uh, empathise with their situation. Right, they've got a team of people beneath them who are pushing them and saying, "We want more. We want this. We want that." And uh, in some organisations, they're then trying to manage upwards and say, "Right, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to to make happen." I'm a big believer in pushing decision making as far along the branch as is possible. So distributed decision making, I think, is a really important process that I think can impact your culture in a really, really beneficial way. So I don't want to be the decision maker. I don't want our our function leads, our heads of departments to be the decision makers. I want the individual to be to be the decision maker as much as possible. And, and I think one of the ways you can uh, you can kind of make it really clear that that's what we're trying to achieve is by what I call the upside down org chart. So I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but take an org chart and put it on its head. And at the very top, you're going to have, you know, what were the lowest ranks in your org chart are now going to be the highest ranks in your org chart. And very typically they are the customer facing people on the front line, people on the coal face. And I would argue that they are your most important employees. Uh, they are there. Everyone beneath them at this point is just there to enable and support. And, and again, it comes back to that difference between leadership and management. M- management in its title implies that the person giving the instruction knows better than the person doing the job is fundamentally incorrect i think as a leader your your role is to is to coach is to ask questions is to is to remove roadblocks um and and so you know in our organization we try and push decision making as far as we can um uh, down the decision-making branch so that team members can make decisions, team leads can make decisions. And I think in that scenario, middle managers are going to feel a lot more empowered. That makes total sense, yeah. And we we, are, we love looking at different decision-making processes, so we're all for encouraging people to look uh, at different ways of doing it as well. Um, I'd be really interested now to think about what it's what your thoughts are on how those responsibilities and those shaping of cultures through leadership and management have changed or do change when you consider remote working. And, and I wonder if, you know, both from your, your expertise as an organization that supports culture, but also your own perspective as a leader. Yeah, super topical. And then, um, so COVID for us has been great in the context of this, this sort of culture flag that we're flying. Um, and I want to be clear, that's not me kind of saying that's what the last 12 months have been easy. And, and um, you know, there have been lots of, of very horrendous things that have happened around the globe. And, you know, I count myself as a, as a very lucky one to be able to sit at home on my computer and 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 still work. Um, definitely fortunate for that to be the case. But I think in the culture space, what COVID and, and you know, hybrid work and remote work has pushed is it's it's taken away all of the distractions. So 
people used a great office or getting drunk on a Friday afternoon or an amazing Christmas party or great snacks in the office or a team lunch. They used all of those as distractions, as, a, as plasters to cover up very weak cultures. And then suddenly, over a space of a couple of weeks, all of that was gone. And business leaders around the world were sitting there going, oh, I actually don't know if our culture can withstand this. I don't know if we've got the, the right people. I don't know if we've got the right policies. And I don't know if we've got the right processes to actively craft our culture on a daily basis. Um, so this quick switch to remote has basically, it's enhanced, it's accelerated our transition to having to think about culture as a tangible thing that you can work on and prioritize. And the way that we're going to do that is by thinking about people, policies and processes. So it's had a profound impact. And, and I think long-term that's really positive because I think it means a lot more organizations are going to prioritize their culture. Prioritize culture means happy, engaged team members, happy, engaged, engaged team members is just good for the world, right? Like what a sad thing to think about that the majority of people that work in the UK in a job don't enjoy going to work. Yeah. Um, that is, that's something that we can change through, uh, through great culture. Yeah. There's, there's some really interesting points in there. Um, I, I, as you were speaking, <clears throat> the sort of analogy of the emperor with no clothes on sort of appeared in my mind. Right. I mean, so, so once we make some of these transitions, it's easy to see what's really there and to see through these things that, that, like you said, have been distractions. And, and years ago, I remember speaking to some people um, about culture and, and Facebook UK and things like that. And this was at a time when people were sort of lauding the, the benefits of this type of organization. And I remember them saying, yeah, it's all really good, but we don't have a pension policy. So we've got these great sleep pods, but we, we don't have a pension. And I just remember thinking about, you know, what are the things that are of value to people and the things that really define and shape their organizations and their experiences of them and, and how you know, we can be distracted by some of these things. So I think that's, um, I think that's neat. And, and one other thing I wanted to just mention is your, your point about the upside down org chart. I, I like that. And it, it, to me, it brings an image of, of a tree and of growth and, and those types of things, which I like. Um, a few weeks ago, or I guess a couple of months ago, we had a, a long conversation with a couple of marine aviators, um, so pilots, and, and they talked about, you know, the culture in, in the military and things like that. And, and about the fast-moving nature of leadership and accountability within organizations. And essentially what they said, um, and I think this is actually policy in, in some Air Forces, is that whoever has the best view is the person that's in charge at that moment. So if things change, then, you know, the leader's not the leader at that moment. The leader seeds through that distributed leadership to the person who can bring the most to that organization. And, and it's nice to hear that kind of thing echoing, um, echoing in some of the language that you, that you bring. Um, if we dive a little bit more into some of these remote cultures, what do you think from an actual practical working standpoint are some of the challenges that we face that, that make remote cultures maybe more difficult to, to think about or more difficult to grow and expand into productive, uh, fulfilling places for, for people to work? You have to just work so much harder, unfortunately. Uh, and you have to be really, really deliberate. It, you know, you look at all the all of the best remote first organizations. Um, you know, GitLab are a great example. Basecamp are a great example. 
um, Buffer was is a great example. I spoke to the people operations manager um, Nicole from from Buffer this week on on, on my podcast, and um, all of them are so deliberate about how they think about these three these three buckets of activities. So, who are the people that are going to really thrive in a remote culture? Because let me tell you, it's not the same people that thrive in an office. Um, what are the policies that are gonna that are that are gonna really support us? You know, how are we thinking about maternity and paternity leave? How are we thinking about holiday? How are we thinking about learning and development? How are we thinking about um, mental health and support there? Right? You know, isolation is a challenge when it comes to remote work. So, you know, mental health becomes something that's thrust into the spotlight. Um, you've got to have answers for that. And an old school employee handbook is not the answer, let me tell you. Um, and then processes, things like transparency. How are you going to ensure there's a free flow of information across the organization so that people have all the context they need because they're not sitting in an office over listening and hearing what people are talking about? How are you going to ensure everyone's aligned? Are you going to use something like OKRs? Um, or are you going to have another kind of KPI and planning process? Um, you're going to retro things. How are you going to learn from your mistakes? We have to spend so much more time being really focused on which of these are right for us uh, and, and are going to help us build build and craft the culture that we want. But the time that we need to invest in, in into it from a remote context is just so much greater because in an office when everyone's together, you can kind of get away with a bit of this stuff. A lot of this stuff ha- happens naturally. And then you've got those sort of those plasters, those crutches that people rely on. And it kind of means they don't have to worry about this. But let me tell you, if someone's sitting at home alone, all they've got is the work that they're doing. So it better be engaging. It better be something that they're, they're aligned on. It better be aligned to the, the, the business's vision and its mission and its purpose. They better be getting good feedback. All of these things, right? It's just... It's so, so much more important to invest in them. And so we've definitely seen that across customers, friends, you know, other people in the space. And and yeah, I, I'm generally really excited by it because I think it's going to accelerate all of this work. That's interesting. I, I, I thought your point at the beginning was particularly interesting about, um, you know, the people who would thrive in a, in a conventional, you know, shared office maybe are different to the people who would um, at home. Um, I, I wanted to ask about a couple of aspects of work that we see coming up when we speak about remote working, and just to get your thoughts on them. And, and they, they fit very well within the areas that you're thinking about. One of them is, is I guess, the shift from synchronous to asynchronous working and, and how, how working works for us when we're not always at that touch point with, with other people. I mean, how do you see people managing that transition or, or do you see people continuing to work in a sort of always on function at home or do you see communication styles changing? Do you, how do you see people actually managing that communication piece remotely to make sure that people have the time for focused work while also maintaining the connection that they need for instruction, feedback, connection and all those types of things? So I guess I, I throw the question a little bit back at you, James. Well, like, What's the part of that that worries you the most? Um, I guess the bit that I think I see challenges within there is as I see scope creep. So I see often leaders um, who lose visibility of the work that people do and and, um, lose uh, their perceptions of control over their teams, maybe 
creeping in, in their communication, maybe becoming more frequent, maybe giving less space and time for people to embrace deeper work, calmer work and focused work that's both fulfilling but productive to the organization is kind of where I see it. I think see that loss of visibility from a leadership being a challenge. Is that something that you guys see or is it just in my world? Yeah, I, I, I really challenge leaders to think about what is it that they need to know. Um, I really don't think the CEO should be the most informed person in the business. Um, and I think, I think if that is the case, if they're trying to be the most informed person in the business, they're trying to understand everything that's going on. I think that's a really bad use of time. Um, it's a kind of, it's a self-confidence thing, right? It's hard to let go, isn't it? I mean, that's, I think that's a challenge. It's hard to yeah. It is, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is hard to let go. And it's a sort of, there's a, there's that deep seated worry about are people doing the right thing? Are we making progress in the right way? Are we, and that's why having a really, really clear vision, a really clear purpose. So Mm -hmm. why are we here? What's our mission? Like, what's the thing we're trying to solve? And what's the vision for the world once we've once you've achieved that mission? What does that look like? Why is it important that we achieve that mission? So doing that and then making sure that you have some process for aligning everyone around what are the priorities this quarter, this month, this week in helping us make progress towards that. If you do that really well as a leader, you shouldn't really need to know what's going on. Is, is my challenge. Um, you know, you should have the confidence that you've hired really smart people and they can make decisions. You've set up this framework. It's a bit like, it's a bit like a football field. I think human beings, we like some constraints. You know, I am not one that believes in complete flexibility, right? You know, the idea that, um, You know, if I took you to the Peak District and said, play a game of football, you'd be like, "Uh, this is really difficult. Um, Where's the goal? This is like a ginormous area to play a game of football in. We're going to get lost. We're probably going to get hurt. This is going to be really challenging and it's not going to be a good game of football. If I take you to a football pitch and say, play a game of football, you're like, okay, this makes sense. I know what the boundaries are. I know what success looks like. Equally, you can take that too far. If I take two football teams and... I put them in an area that is, you know, 10 metres by 20 metres. They're going to be cramped. They're not going to have space to flow. They're not going to have space to do anything. It's going to be, a, it's going to also going to be a really bad game of football. So I think that's the job of a great leader. Set the constraints. What's the pitch we're playing on? And then place the goals in the ground. What does success look like? And then let your superstars run around that pitch and try and score goals. And if they fall over, if they hurt themselves, if, if if they're playing off position, then you don't shrink the parameters of the pitch, but you have a quick word with them. You say, hey, what's going on? How are you feeling? Do you need anything else? Is it clear? Have I been clear on what your role is, on what, on, on what position I want you to play? Like That's the model for, for, for getting this stuff right, rather than, I want to be the person that knows everything and is close to every decision. I think that's a really lovely metaphor um, to bring to life 
kind of where the limits of a leader's responsibility might be with an organization, particularly in terms of the practical getting involved. And I think I think I agree that we quite often see leaders sort of drawn into more detail, particularly, um, so my background in small organizations, particularly in the expertise or the route they've come up through. So they quite often be much more respectful of expertise that does not necessarily overlap with their own experiences. Um, I wondered a little bit about, I just wanted to ask a couple, a couple of questions before, uh, before I wrap up with mine, is how, how do you, when we think about developing cultures in a team and people are different and individual, right? And not even if we recruit well for fit and we're trying to get um, diversity within our hires, as well as a good, strong culture, we still have people who have different opinions and different ways of working. How do you think leaders can navigate situations where they have teams with different cultures within their sort of wider culture? And is that something that worries you or would you encourage it? So for example, on a very practical level, teams I've led before have had the IT team, has had, uh, the, the sort of the IT software team has had a very different culture from the people team, for example, in terms of the way they behave, their people, their hires, their policies, their processes, you describe it in the buckets. Does that, do you think that matters? Is that a good thing? Or can that be a hindrance for an organization trying to get something consistent across the whole organization? Yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. And I am so confused at this idea that we, well, I don't know where we picked up, picked up this idea of consistency. Like society is not consistent. Uh, our customers are not consistent. Yet we kind of got a little bit, you know, uh, fascinated by this idea of creating cultural consistency within our organizations. I think that's a really dangerous thing to do. And anyone listening who is hiring for culture fit, I want you to stop doing that immediately because I think it is, it is dangerous and it leads to monocultures. We want to hire for culture ad. We want to hire for how, how are these people going to add to our culture? What are they going to bring? That, that, that culture is ever-changing and ever-evolving. And we use the people we hire, the policies and the processes, to navigate it, to, uh, to amend things, to shift things around. Um, but I think we should be absolutely celebrating differences. We should be celebrating um, subcultures within an, within an organisation. Um, you know, uh, I think it's so important that, for example, in the example that you used, IT can be... And I'm going to use some stereotypes, introverted. If they, if they want to be introverted and they want, to, um, they want to do a computer games night or they want to do a board games night or they want to, you know, do something that the people team don't want to engage with, I think that's awesome. That's amazing. And we should be supporting them to do that. Um, equally, if the people team want to do something completely different, we should allow them to do that. So I think that's really important. I think I think that, that the end result is a is a is a a culture with diversity of thought and opinion and that's a really great thing and that's going to allow you to serve your customers much better the the common thread that we're trying to we're trying to pull here is not cultural alignment it's not cultural fit it is values alignment do the people that we're hiring share the same values and and that that's where we're looking for alignment and that's the key thing and i think it's really important not to get those two things mixed mixed up um you know people can 
behave slightly differently. They can have different things that they're interested in, different passions, different ways of communicating, but they can share the same values. Let's use integrity, right? Integrity is a great example. We want to hire people with really high integrity. They can be very different people, but they can have high integrity. And that's the fit that we're looking for. It's not necessarily cultural similarity. It's values, alignment, and similarity. That's, um, that's really helpful. And it's, it's a good insight for individuals looking to make changes in their teams. I guess we're starting to get towards the, um, the end of our conversation just in terms of time. If you were uh, maybe a leader in a smaller organization and, and you've listened to the things that we've spoken about here and, and you wanted to start to affect your culture or make some changes, what advice would you give that person in terms of how to start? You know, if there's a leader looking at one of these smaller organizations that we're speaking about, so, you know, less than 100 people, and they want to change things, what's the starting point for them? What's that departure point for changing their culture? So I think the first thing is to actually prioritize it and start talking about it. So the easiest thing I would do is, do you have a leadership team uh, meeting? Is it once a month? Is it once a week? Is it once a quarter? Put culture on the agenda and make it a standing agenda item uh, and just have an open conversation about what do we think about our culture? Like what's working? What isn't working? Um, that's the first thing is to actually is actually start talking about it because once you start talking about it, you'll realize how it's serving you and how it's not. I think the second thing is then make it someone's responsibility and that person should be at the highest level of the business. It should be someone on that leadership team. We have a chief of staff who's ultimately responsible for culture, but we also have what's called a culture ops manager, which is a, a new role that we've created, which sits between people, HR and operations and gives them a remit to change those three things, people, policies and processes. You don't need to hire someone into the role full time, but I think definitely having someone that's responsible for it is really important. And then the third thing is try and write down what you want your culture to look like. What does success look like here? What are the what are the values? What are the behaviors that you're trying to embody in your culture? Is it teamwork? Is it um, integrity? Is it speed and agility? Right now, all of those words are great. They're not very helpful though because. Again, we all have slightly di slight different definitions. So then go and define them with the proposed and the correct behaviors that you'd want to see. So we show integrity when we do X, Y, and Z. We show our commitment to teamwork when we behave like this and give examples. So you codify it. So talk about it, make some responsible, responsible for it, and then codify what does success look like. And I think if you can do all of those two things, uh, that's a great start. That's, that's really good. And that values into behaviors piece is such a powerful stage. And it, it's such a good way to help people see what these things mean for them on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it really brings things to life. We, we've spoken there a little bit about what leaders can do or, or those more in positions of power and towards the top organizations can do in this space. I guess, very last question for me, if there's somebody out here who's maybe not in a position of power, who, who maybe thinks their organizational culture could benefit from improving or changing, or, or they have some challenges with it, which, as you alluded to earlier, a lot of people do, 
Well, something that somebody might be able to do if they could do just one one thing as as a person, you know, scattered in the midst of an organization, what type of thing might they be able to do to start looking to influence the cultures that they are working within? Feedback. The highest value um, process that you can implement within an organization that will have a exponential impact on your ability to transform and craft your culture is feedback. If an organization has feedback at their core, um, people are willing to give feedback up up ways, down ways, sideways, um, then you're setting yourself up to craft your culture. If you don't have feedback in place, it becomes really, really difficult uh, to make anything happen. So feedback is always where I would start. Cool. That's helpful. Okay. Well, with that, we are um, pretty much out of time. So just to wrap things up, I just wanted to ask you, how can people learn a little bit more about the work that you're doing now in the culture space and then maybe explore um, your business a bit more um, and things like that? Sure. Yeah. Well, look, we're on, I'm on a podcast, so I guess I'll, 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 I'll talk about my podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, we do a podcast called the Culture Ops Podcast, uh, all one word, Culture Ops and you can find it everywhere. Um, and uh, yeah, we're in our in our second season, 10 episodes per season. Um, every week, I do a deep dive on a particular policy, a particular process that is uh, interacting with, with someone's culture. So this week, it was Nicole from Buffer. Uh, the previous week, I spoke to Bruce Daisley, who used to be a European VP of Twitter. Um, uh, so yeah subscribe and uh, give it a listen. And hopefully there's some useful nuggets in there. Brilliant. Well, we will share that when we share this um, and look forward to those episodes. Those sound great. Um, So it's just time to say a huge thank you from me. That was really fun. So thank you. And a thank you from me too. No worries, guys. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Okay. So you are back in the room with us. And that was our conversation with Ben from Charlie HR. Um, Jane, there was lots of stuff in there. We covered quite a wide range of things in the broader culture domain. Is there anything that struck you specifically or anything you'd like to reflect back on? I felt we covered a lot of ground, it feels like. Um, But probably the two things that really struck me. Firstly, something I just really enjoyed listening to was listening to Ben articulate his own experiences of leadership and listening to how he seems to have incorporated those into the way that Charlie HR work with organizations to support them on their culture. And I thought that was really interesting to listen to because it it feels like a, almost like a curtain being lifted on an organization uh, when people talk about it. So I liked that. And the other thing I thought was really powerful was his articulation of leadership responsibilities, both in the metaphors he used. So I really liked the, I mean, I would, it's sport, but I, he really, the metaphor of a football pitch and, you know, where, leaders need to step back and give space for their teams and their organizations to do stuff. I I found that a useful um, way of thinking about things, but also that he, he talks as if he perceives that leaders have a response, a quite serious responsibility to their organizations and that that should be worn not too lightly. And I, I really warm to that as an idea because I think leadership is hard I don't think it's about the best person doing it. I do think it's about the person who's willing to do the work to do it and to do it well. And so when he talks about leaders taking that responsibility, I found that quite a compelling argument, I think. Yeah, I connected with those points as well. I thought the image of a football pitch up in the Lake District was particularly 
um, particularly visual and helpful. And, and I liked the incorporation of our, you know, definition of rules of a game, which is what a lot of this sort of contracting is about how we work together. Um, that visualization really helped with that. Yeah, we should um, probably, I, just occurs to me, we should probably point out to our international listeners that the Lake District is a mountainous region or a very hilly region of the UK. We're playing football and it's vast for the UK. So it would be very difficult to play any kind of flat pitched game in a single part of the Lake District without finding help. Yeah. And and all the, you know, the necessary incorporation of boundaries and expectations and rules into our ways of working is, is really well um, cap- encapsulated in that um, image. So, so I thought that was great. A couple of other bits stood out for me that I thought were worth um, picking up on or, or um, sharing again. And, and one for me was really about the importance of sort of putting this conversation about culture out there and, and, you know, even just putting it on your agenda, right? Making culture a talking point as a starting point for exploring and changing your culture is such an obvious starting point, but it's such an easy one. And, and, and even if you just put it on as a talking point in a meeting, you can just see what emerges from there. And that in itself shifts the leadership attention and leadership focus and role modeling and all those types of things that will start to drive some of the, the change and awareness, which I think is, is helpful. And another thing that I particularly liked about this conversation and a set of things that, that we heard from Ben is that we have a lot of really practical steps in here, you know, specific pieces of advice. And one of the problems I think we often have with culture is that it is sometimes seen as too big of a thing or a, a difficult to access or hard to change and all those things. And listening to the, the conversation that we had with Ben, we don't need to boil the ocean when it comes to culture. We don't need to press one button and change it. You know, what we can do is we can step back and think about how we want things to be, and then we can just make small changes. And we'll make a small change here and a small change there. And before we know it, we've, we've changed a lot of things that have had a direct impact on the behaviors within our organization and how it feels to be there and the impact that it has on us. So I liked that practicality of what we've covered. Yeah, and I, I guess my one piece of advice for listeners, if they were interested in this episode would be go and revisit the stuff we've talked around around Edgar Schein's organizational culture model or triangle or go and Google it. Because actually, um, I think what Ben articulates really well is that how culture shows up. Um, but I also think it's a really helpful sort of co-read, if you like, to understand how Schein conceptualized what lies underneath that and what drives that. Because I think it explains quite well why you and I quite often talk about the espoused values, but also the underlying beliefs of organizations and how that shapes and should shape um, well thought out people policies, policies and process. Absolutely. Great shout out. All right. Well, let us leave it there and wrap up. So it is goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Hi, everyone. This is James. Uh, Thank you very much for listening to that podcast. And please do share it and review it if you enjoyed it. And don't forget, you can learn more about our coaching, workshops, courses, and development programs on our website. That's www.worldofwork.io. Again, www.worldofwork.io.